The Free For All Roundtable. Round one. On round one this morning, let's say good morning to Laura Babcock from Power Group Communications, also host of The O Show. Lisa Raitt is a former federal cabinet minister. Mark Warner, international trade lawyer. Good to have you all. And uh, let's actually start. I don't really think we need to get into whether or not there's going to be a strike with education workers. That's highly speculative. You can work it into your remarks on this first education story, though. Uh, We have two different reports out today saying that kids in grade one are falling short on their reading and kids in grade six are falling short on their math. Lisa Raitt, I think we have to integrate into this the fact that we've been through two years of educational hell. So I'm not sure if it's the school system failing or just the gap that was created by COVID. I'm with you there, John. I'm not ready to lay blame on anyone or even say that we have a significant issue yet. But what I will say that I learned from these articles is that we don't really have information from across all the school boards as to how the kids are doing. And I do believe that in order to manage something, you really have to be able to measure it. So I'm hoping that people are looking at putting more data together so that we can actually have an understanding of of what has happened as a result of pandemic and how we're going to address it going further. And anecdotally, um, my son was finishing up his last three years of high school during the COVID time. And boy, I am not a high school teacher. I'll tell you that. I was as helpful as I possibly could, but uh, you need a skill set in order to get the information across to these kids. And now that he's in first year university, I really worry about him. I worry that he got the foundation he needed for the, the test, the midterms that he just went through. Yeah, Laura Babcock, again, we may have to address down the road endemic problems in the education system, but for a lot of people, including perhaps your kids, this is just, you know, during these two years, we couldn't get a normal education in, which means there are missing pieces as the kids graduate forward. Absolutely. It was, I don't want to swear early in the morning, but it was that kind of a show. It was terrible. Uh, I mean, people around uh, education understand the teachers were incredibly stressed and frustrated and doing their very best. But I would hear about teacher behaviors just under incredible pressure during the pandemic and fear for their own lives and families and not being able to get these kids attention and kids would be online learning out of their beds in the morning, half asleep, and the teachers were begging for them just to turn on their screens. I mean, I'm telling Telling you, John, the fact that anyone, the kids or the teachers or the education system got through the last two years, I think we should just give them credit. Some people refer to the pandemic as the great pause. And for some of us, we got to pause and reflect on our life and our values and our careers. But for the education system, it was the great pause. And so these kids are coming out with absolute gaps in their learning, gaps in their confidence, gaps in their communication and social skills. I've talked to a lot of academics and teachers and principals at my kids' schools about just how the kids learned how to socialize during the pandemic and how they've fallen behind just in terms of social connections, the mental illness, the stress these kids are facing. I mean, this is not just about math scores. Uh, No one's to blame for that. You know, it's about the bigger impact on our children and how they're set up to handle the pressures of the future, not just of their math and literacy scores. Well, and Mark Warner, interesting in the coverage we were looking at this morning about this story, uh, a private math tutor says that it's not just about sort of the missing data in kids' heads. Some of the kids she encountered have lost their confidence. They just don't think they can even handle math. So that's part of the problem. Yeah. So I, I, I think I have a different take to the, than, than Laura and um, Lisa on this. I think that there, if you look at it, we, we had reports like this before the pandemic. And if I recall, the first time Doug Ford was elected, what he wanted to do is create standards 
for teachers, particularly about math, math, math teachers. So I think it would be a huge mistake to think that this is a problem that is COVID related and pandemic related alone. I think there have been systemic problems and particularly in the teaching of math, the reading I'm not quite sure about. I don't have kids myself. I do. So what I know, I know, you know, anecdotally from my friends who I, you know, over the years, again, predating the pandemic have not been overly impressed with the, with the Ontario education system and, and, and spent a lot of time with their own kids and um, themselves and with, uh, with tutors trying to supplement the, you know, what they're getting in school. So I, I suspect it's a bigger problem and I think it would be a huge mistake to sort of throw this on the pandemic fire like we throw everything on these days. John, John can I just comment yep, on that? Go ahead. When it came out two years pre-pandemic that the scores were where they were, I was an advocate for Ford trying to get um, better math and, and literacy in our schools. So I agree with Mark. There's no doubt this existed, this problem with our scoring pre-pandemic. What I'm suggesting, though, is that I actually think that there is a bigger crisis in our education system because of the pause in terms of kids' confidence and mental health and the overall gaps in their socialization and learning than just these scores. So I'm not negating the fact that the problem on these scores goes back and we have problems in our education system. I'm just trying to raise the alarm bells around the bigger issues that kids are facing because of this disruption in their lives. It's funny because Joe Cristiano sent me a copy of a grade six math exam and uh, I'm, I'm going to complete the whole thing later on today. Maybe we'll talk about it on the Jerry Agar show tomorrow because we're switching our, uh, our assignments. But I think a lot of people would be hard pressed. Uh, for example, here's question number two. Uh, there's a picture of a rectangle. It says this rectangle rectangular prism has a volume of 192 centimeters cubed. It is eight centimeters across and six centimeters across the other axis. What is its height? And I, I would have to think long and hard about that, to be perfectly honest. It's amazing the stuff that we learned in school that is completely forgotten. And I guess the idea was that it was a foundation lest we go on to any of those as a specialization. But listen, let's keep moving. Uh, Gil Penalosa, and people are castigating me for suggesting that he's not going to win the election. Um, but Gil Penulosa, who's a former urban planner, so maybe I'll start with you, Mark Warner, because you come from an urban planning family. Uh, he says that it's not too late to reconsider repairing, restoring, and rerouting the Gardner Expressway. He says we should actually tear the thing down. And he points out that we are spending an absolute fortune on something that is used by very few. But what say you? Has he costed his... Uh his platforms uh, for the buses and the, now this one too. I mean, I mean, I, I've, I've never, I mean, I've, I've lived in cities and I've visited cities where they've done things like this. So I have a sense of what it could look like, but what I never have a sense of when Toronto urban planning crowd talks is what it actually would look like, you know, cause there's a tendency to say, Oh, they do this here. And I go, no, what you're proposing doesn't look anything like what they look there. I don't know what magazine you read it in, but so, um, so, you know, I, I, in terms of the gardener, you know, and then you get the other crowd that talks about all the studies that you can point to that removing highways doesn't affect traffic. And then you have the experience when you get in the car and drive in Toronto and boy, it sure looks like this stuff we jerk around with traffic that does affect traffic. So, um, I'm not taking this too seriously because I don't think he has a chance of winning. No, and, and that's the thing. Lisa Ray, a lot of people say, why is anybody even talking about what Gil Penulosa is talking about? Because these are urban ideas that maybe the next mayor might consider, although we know John Tory has ruled this one out. And my issue, and you can take this in any direction, but one of my issues in Ontario and Toronto is we often settle on a plan that may be a bad plan, and then we just keep going because it's too late to turn around. 
I could tell you that I actually have fear anytime somebody starts talking about touching the gardener or the lakeshore or any of the main arteries. And, and the reason being is that yesterday, I don't know if people noticed what happened in and around Scotiabank Arena, but I had to drive yesterday because we don't have all day two-way go service in Milton. And as a result, um, I found myself at two o'clock in the afternoon on Bay Street where they were digging up both Lakeshore and Bay, had it all shut off. And the Raptors were opening up last night at the Scotiabank Arena. And it was terrifying just to, to watch all of the chaos happening around you. So anytime somebody mentions that they're going to reroute traffic in the city as a result of a great idea, I actually become a little paralyzed because all I can see is the pain that we're going to go through for the next 10 years. And maybe a lot of other residents feel the same way. I want to jump to a different topic here, and that would be Orchard Villa, which is a nursing home that had a terrible record during COVID. They had more than 70 residents who died of COVID-19. And then when the Army moved in, they found all kinds of horror tales. And Laura Babcock, they've applied for a 30-year license extension, which the NDP says absolutely should not be granted. Um, So what do you see here? Hell no, they shouldn't get the extension. They should be on probation for the very ability to operate. They should be on sort of a a one-year, two-year, five-year probation where they get regular checks and inspections, where the families are regularly touched base with to talk about the care of their their family members. I mean, what what happened in there wasn't just all the people who died of COVID, which was a high number uh, proportionally to other places. It was the fact that there was actual abuse of the patients going on. I mean, kind of conditions that you would never ever want anyone you love to ever go through. So how on, and this is, you know, to the point we were talking about earlier, can't blame everything on the pandemic. The behaviors that were happening in this this home were not just because there was a virus going through. It had to do with the way that they were approaching the care of the people trusted in their care. So 100%, these places that we know what was going on inside, we have the records, they should not be given a carte blanche for 30 years to potentially put other people in jeopardy. They should be under absolute inspection and probation, period. Okay, then Mark Warner, one of the problems here is we don't have enough long-term care beds, so we're kind of screwed on the file. You know, it's tough because the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with, with, uh, with, um, I think it was Laura just said that, you know, you want to give it to them on a stage basis. There may be ways, there may be something in between giving them a complete 30 year contract and giving them, you know, sort of a one year probation. You may be able to stage it to sort of, um, so that it adds up to 30, but there are choke points, and that's probably not the right way right word to use, but there are points along the way where you can cancel the contract without penalty if they're not meeting certain standards and that there are regular tests built in. But I, I do think you, 30 years, if it were just a straight out 30 years, would be too long. On, on the other hand, people need to invest, and that's part of the problem. Yeah. If you're investing in, in changing this and updating it, you're going to want to know that you've got, you've got a longer term contract. So somewhere between those two points, you've got to find a solution. And there's a, a personal aspect, Lisa, right, to, to this yeah. file for you because uh, your it husband's is. in long-term care. He is, and there's even though you may be the best place to be, no one's no, nothing is perfect. And I'm not even suggested that these guys are are should get their license back. I mean, that's part of the whole due diligence. I Mark is right, Laura's right, and somewhere in there they're going to have to figure out the right length for a license. But I did note 
in the article, they said that what happens is it's just different management may come in. So you may not lose the beds entirely. It just may be somebody else will have the license to operate the facility. So uh, for me, as you point out, John, it's about losing beds in the system. That gives me great pause and concern. But I don't think it ends up in that route. I think it goes down to how the management is faring. Thank you all. Good to have you. Lots of passion this morning. Lisa Rate, Laura Babcock, Mark Warner. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.